Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, Donaldina Cameron and the Occidental Mission Home by author Julia Flynn Seiler in conversation with Helen Zia. Julia has written her most recent book about the remarkable women who rescued Asian women from slavery and prostitution in Chinatown, San Francisco, called The White Devil's Daughters, The Fight Against Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. I am a member of the club's Asia-Pacific Affairs Forum and your chair for today. We also welcome our listening audience, and we, visit, we invite everyone to visit us online at commonclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to, dis- to introduce our distinguished speakers. Julia Flynn Seiler is a New York Times best-selling author and journalist. In addition to her new book, The White Devil's Daughter, which which launches this week, I understand, um, and which our speakers will talk about this evening. She is the author of Lost Kingdom, Hawaii's Last Queen, The Sugar Kings and America's First Imperial Adventure. Her first book, The House of Mondavi, The Rise and Fall of an American Wine Dynasty, was a finalist for a James Beard Award and a Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Reporting. A veteran journalist, Seiler is a longtime contributor and former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal and has been a guest commentator on the BBC, CNBC, and CNN. Helen Zia is an award-winning author, journalist, and activist who has covered Asian American communities and social and political movements for decades. Her first book, Asian American Dreams, The Emergence of an American People, was a groundbreaking history of Asian Americans in the United States. Uh, she's also co-author with Wenho Lee of My Country Versus Me about the falsely, falsely accused Los Alamos scientist. Her latest book, Last Boat Out of Shanghai, The Chinese Who Fled Mao's Revolution, was launched in January to highly favorable reviews. We had a full house here at the Commonwealth Club in January for her conversation with Ben Fong Torres about Last Boat in Shanghai. Her articles have appeared in numerous publications, and she has also appeared in news programs and films, including the Academy Award-nominated film, Who Killed Vincent Chin? So, uh, so please welcome our speakers today. Thanks to all of you. Yeah. <laughs> well, Julia Flynn Seiler, you have written the most remarkable book. And I have to say, I'm so honored to be here as part of your official launch week. And I understand today is the very first day that it's going to be available online. And uh, so I had a chance to read it beforehand, and you really swept me away by all of the work and incredible stories and beautifully told stories here. And so um, I guess, you know, for me, I first visited uh, the Cameron House in 1983 for an event that I remember, actually, um, the Reverend Jesse Jackson was in town running for president, and there was a community event there, and I had 
inkling of the significance of the um, of 920 Sacramento Street. But after reading your book, I realized just how little I knew. And I know from your introduction that you first learned of the uh, Donaldina, Donaldina Cameron House in 2013. And I was just stunned by how much research you did in a relatively short time. Mm, thank you, Helen. So um, I'm imagining that there are uh, some of you who know a little bit about Cameron House. And I just want to get a sense from you. Just raise your hands. How many of you have heard of Cameron House beforehand? Quite a few of you. Wow. And how many of you were part of, had part of your growing up at uh, Cameron House? A higher. Let's see. Okay, a fair number of you. Well, I just want to say, um, in talking to some friends who grew up as part of uh, Cameron House, I know that some of the history was part of your being um, children uh, there, but you're going to find a lot of things that you never even knew in, in this book. So um, you're in for a treat, and I... Julie, you have really brought a history to life, something that was uh, what I call M-I-H, missing in history. So um, Good phrase. I'm going to start using that, Helen. So M-I-H. It's not <laughs> M-I-H anymore. And, and so The White Devil's Daughters, what a title. <laughs> and so I, I, I thought I'd just begin if you, if you want to, like, who is the White Devil? Who is Tell the us. White Devil? Yes. The White Devil defer, de, refers to Donaldina Cameron, who was the long-serving superintendent of the, what was variously known as the Occidental Mission Home, the Presbyterian Mission Home, 920 Sacramento Street, in right on the edge of Chinatown. And um, her enemies called her the White Devil. And that uh, that name was repeated in newspapers and even in a Presbyterian magazine, I found, really? which I was a little surprised oh. by. And so who were her enemies? Tell us about that. Well, Cameron House is, has such a remarkable history because it is an example of a very small group of people very early on who uh, decided to act against the virulent racism of the 1870s. They saw a need, vulnerable women, and they decided to set up a refuge home. And so, um, uh, um, tell me a question again, Helen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just going off. And so, no. Sorry so about that. Who were these enemies who called oh, okay. her the white devil? And, yeah. and, and also, I, I mean... Your book, even yeah. though we're talking about these women and the white devil who fought against enslavement, terrible brutality and and cruelty. Yes. I mean, your book also captures so much heroism. Yes. And so even Thank though you. she had this remarkable name, <laughs> yes. um, she was really a heroine in many she, ways, right? She was, but there was a large group of women around her and also men as well around her. And, uh, you know, essentially with the point I was trying to make as I lost my way <laughs> was that she and the other women who set up this rescue home were essentially disrupting the traffic in women between China and the United States. They were disrupting an extremely lucrative business. And it was the traffickers who called her that. And many of the, much of the way, traffic in women was controlled by criminal tongs. So that, that's who called her that. And yet it was also picked up in newspapers, which I imagine were not 
run by the Tongs or even out of Chinatown. So one of the really fascinating things was how you, um, your history is, it, it's, go, it's got so many layers to it. I mean, there's the Chinatown, the traffickers, the Tongs, the Chinese, but also the city of San Francisco, mm-hmm. which, um, and well beyond that, uh, which I'll ask you more about later, but um, besides the, tra- I mean, the traffickers included uh, San Francisco officials, right? Absolutely. I mean, just imagine this scene, not very far from here, first in Brannon. So steamers would come from China. They would pull up to the wharves or they would anchor out. Right out here. Right, right out, out here. here. And say 300, 400 women would get off of those steamers and in po- full public view, those women would be loaded onto um, uh, often carriages or wagons and brought up to Chinatown. And it was white officials who, and white immigration officials and police officials that were making this happen, easing the way for these large groups of women. And then the women would be sold um, out in public view. It's, it's mind-boggling to think now. And this was, of course, after the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. After passed. the Civil War. After the Civil War. Fighting slavery. And, yeah. And, um, well, uh, also the daughters, the white devil's daughters. Yes. So the stories of heroism, and I, I mean, it's often, even today, where we read news, um, unfortunately, uh, too often about sex trafficking or the trafficking of, of, of human beings, um, that the people are depicted as, as victims, as helpless people, and so forth. But you've actually given them his heroic stories, too. I mean, you've tracked them, um, a number of them, very closely to tell their stories, how they came to be on an auction block, how they ended up at the Cameron House or the Occidental Mission Home at the time, how they fought uh, incredible odds, including police officers and and the mayor of San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, to reach this home. So, did you you wrote about a number of them? Did a, you know? Would you like to talk about a few of them and that are you know stood out to you? Absolutely. Uh, The book is um, structured in such a way that it begins with the, what I consider, very heroic dash that a teenager, a teenage girl, made from a beauty shop in Jackson Street. And this was, she had been tricked into forced prostitution. And this was in the 1930s. 1933. This, so this is this December is of 1933. Not the 1800s. This is the 1930s. Yes, which is surprising that this is still going on. So she makes this run, the six blocks between this beauty shop in on Jackson Street to 920 Sacramento Street. And the book follows her passage um, and ends up with uh, her heroic testimony against the trafficking ring that brought her and other young women into San Francisco. And the head of that ring was probably, had been doing it for decades. Um, So she was very courageous because when she made that dash from that beauty shop, she was about five months pregnant. And uh, um, it's just astonishing. So that's one example. That's an example from the 1930s. And that was also a case where 
she made that choice. She had agency and made that run and decided to testify. Um, in other, the other, some of the, there are just some remarkable stories of the women who came through there. One of my favorite stories involves a Japanese woman, and her name was Yamada Waka. And she had been tricked into prostitution and ended up in um, Seattle. And she was a very popular prostitute. She actually made the papers for her her attractions or something like that. Um, any case, she makes her way down to San Francisco with the help of a journalist. Uh, the journalist then turns around and tries to force her back into prostitution. She chooses to escape to 920 Sacramento Street. And um, what, at the time that she arrived at the mission home, which is right before the beginning of the 20th century, she was probably illiterate. She probably did not know how to read or write. And she was able to gain an education through the efforts of the, the mission home. And um, then she st took another step and went a little further and, and started getting tutoring outside the home, ended up marrying her tutor. She goes back to Japan and sets up not only a a, a home that's very similar to the one that had been so important to her her survival. Her survival, um, but she became a leading a leading feminist author, and um, ultimately was invited by Eleanor uh, Roosevelt to the White House. Amazing, yes, it's an incredible story. So, um, the, these were in the twentieth century, and actually, if we could just back up a little sure. bit to the eight, the late 1800s. I mm -hmm. mean, some of the descriptions you have of Chinatown and San Francisco and the rescues, I mean, these were difficult, dangerous rescues that took place. Um, if you can imagine, some of them where people were uh, climbed onto the roofs of these San Francisco buildings to find the skylight and drop down into the building and knock on doors. And so some of your, some of your, you know, uh, young girls even were, were found this way. I mean, how did, how did they engineer doing, you know, um, these women who were, couldn't even vote then, suffragettes, you know, yes. women hadn't been, you know, 1920 hadn't happened yet. They didn't have the vote, but they were, these were activist women, you know, in the late 1800s who figured out that this was something terrible. And they planned, and many of the middle-class women planned, you know, what, let's go climb a skylight? I mean, some of them actually yeah. dropped down, right? Absolutely. And, you know, against the, uh, the, the wishes of the church elders, the male church elders weren't too enthusiastic about their charitable project. Um, and I can pretty much guarantee some of their husbands weren't too enthusiastic about it either. I mean, the general feeling at that time in San Francisco in the 1870s and 1880s were that uh, Chinese prostitutes were the uh, most feared and despised people in the city. And one of the reasons was the fear of disease. Um, and so these women were doing something that really was um, courageous and also very much against what the popular um, feeling was at that time. In the 1870s, as many of you know, I mean, it's Across the West, there was widespread violence against the Chinese, including lynchings. Right, yeah. much of which was uh, 
San Francisco was the epicenter for those movements that led to the Chinese Exclusion Act that you document very well here in, in, uh, in such um, in detail, but such storytelling to, to just weave in the background of this history. Um, so, so these women were uh, not only fighting the trafficking of girls and women, but also uh, the you know going against the tide of the mm-hmm. you know national movement to rid the country of all Asian people. Yes, and they had an ulterior motive, of course, and that ulterior motive was that they wanted to save quote heathen souls. They were Christian missionaries. They were hoping to convert the Chinese women who were desperate to Christianity. And some of the women who came through, girls and women who came through, did convert to Christianity. A lot of them did not. Um, And I think that as time went past, um, the house became almost more of a social services agency than uh, a a missionary operation. Uh, In fact, as... I, I don't know. It, was there a date when the sex trafficking actually ended or they, they had? I know in your book you show that uh, as time went on, there were fewer of these um, rescues because more laws and more enforcement against the trafficking went on, uh, even though even into the 1930s. And I would guess, well, we know trafficking still happens today. But uh, some of the people who found their way to to the um to the Cameron House were escaping um, domestic violence, forced marriages, things, things yes. like that. Yes, that's true. Um, the, the gender discrepancies and the immigration uh, restrictions, ironically, made trafficking of women more lucrative. So, for example, the Page Act uh, clamped down on women who, Chinese women who could come to the United States, and that became even... Um, more intense with, as you mentioned, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. And that was quite an incentive for the traffickers. I mean, one of the most famous traffickers at the end of the 19th century was a, uh, he got the nickname uh, Little Pete. And he had some very inventive ways of smuggling women in, including the, um, the different expositions, the giant fairs all over the country. So he would bring in girls and women as performers. And sure enough, a few weeks or months after these fairs closed down, those girls would be in the brothels. Uh, yeah. um, I, the other thing you do is weave everything into San Francisco as a place, but not just San Francisco, Marin, Oakland, Mills College, um, Sacramento, other parts of the country, you know, Scotland. And the 1906 earthquake was such a dramatic point in this book. I, I wonder if you could share what, what happened. I mean, by then, the uh, Occidental Mission Home had what was, uh, this building might have had 60 or more women, girls, their babies in here, and then the earthquake happens. And uh, of course, it was a brick building, and so much of San Francisco was leveled, and all around it, the, you know, the earth was shaking. And, and and yet they managed to save all of these women and girls and staff who were there. I mean, it's such such a dramatic story. It's such a dramatic story. In fact, reading uh, Dolly Cameron's first-person account of 
uh, what happened on that morning of April, what would have been 18th, 1906, uh, was one of the inspirations for writing this book because her description was so vivid. You could really smell the smoke and you could see the fires. And um, so, you know, the earthquake struck about five in the morning and Donaldina Cameron described it as, as being on the sea. It felt like the earth was rolling and uh, the house still stood. Um, and they even managed to put together a simple breakfast for the, the 60 girls and women who were there. But then aftershocks started happening, and they started to see billows of smoke come up through the city. And they quickly realized they needed to get everybody out um, somewhere else for safety. So the first night, they walked up to what was then a big church on Van Ness Avenue to the west, which was safer. Meanwhile, by that afternoon, late afternoon, the fires were starting to explode. Um, the next morning, they realized they had to leave the city if they could. So they walked those two miles or whatever close it must have been uh, down to the Embarcadero and uh, along with all kinds of other people with their furniture and all their possessions managed to get up spots on the ferry or the whatever boats were heading across the right here at the ferry building. right here at the ferry building can you imagine trying to get 60 girls women a blind woman uh, babies people carrying eggs so they and get them onto the ferry. there were thousands of other people who were trying to do the same thing right buying for spots it, it's just incredible that you know talk about hurting you know 60 cats or yeah. chickens and, yeah and she managed this. This is Donaldina Cameron who did this. Yes. Uh, so then they land at Sausalito. They uh, make their way to the San Francisco Theological Seminary, which at that point had moved to San Anselmo and um, is, was in a wonderful campus that looks kind of like Scottish Castle. Uh, the only room that they could find for them at the, uh, the theological seminary was a barn. So they uh, slept in a barn for about a week, and then they moved to a, a kind of ramshackle house they called the Fairy Palace in San Rafael, made their way back Oakland. Meanwhile, during those months, the subsequent months, Donaldina and the other women of uh, the Presbyterian Mission Home are fundraising like crazy because they have to rebuild the home. And, and Chinatown at this point is absolutely leveled. There's almost nothing left. And speaking of fundraising, I mean, this is a challenge for, you know, everybody and every nonprofit <laughs> or uh, NGO today. I mean, she was not only somebody with a huge heart to do this and inventive and everything, she was highly successful as a fundraiser too, right? She knew the society people of San Francisco of, of the day. Uh, well, one of the things that's so striking is that the mission home literally is in the shadow of the Fairmont Hotel. She could walk up to the, the beautiful parlors of the Knob Hill Doyens and have tea with them and ask for money and then go back down to the mission home in about five minutes. Um, she was extremely effective at uh, telling her story. Um, so who were some of her um, uh, sponsors? Well, one of the very early donors was... Um, uh, Mrs. Hurst, Phoebe Hurst, who is most famous these days because she funded the wonderful collection at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, so Phoebe Apperson Hurst was one of them. Uh, the Gamble family in Palo Alto is one of them. Uh, there was the, uh, the owner of the shipping line, the biggest shipping line between uh, China and San Francisco became a major donor and, in fact, funded uh, the home for younger 
uh, girls, which was built after the earthquake. It was called Ming Kwong in uh, Oakland. It's now part of the Mills College campus. Right. And wasn't that designed by Julia Morgan? Yes. I just was there last yeah. week. It's, it's a beautiful building. And that was probably through Phoebe Hearst, because was Hearst Castle being built yet? I can't remember. Hearst Castle, I believe, was being built around the time of the earthquake. Is that possible or would it have been later? Does somebody know? Anybody know? <laughs> Any history buffs here? Yeah. have to look that one up. But uh, it was that connection that got the, you know, the, um, which is a, a gem of Mills College to have yes. this Julia Morgan design building. But that was because of the uh, Cameron House and Donaldina uh, Cameron. Yes, absolutely. Now, I, to be more precise, it's on the Mills College campus, but it's now the Julia Morgan School for Girls. And it's all about female empowerment. And there are different rooms. It's, you know, the Donaldina Cameron room and the other rooms. So that's kind of cool. Julia Morgan. Well, and speaking of, um, of female empowerment, some of the, the girls and young women who came through um, what's now the Cameron House, I mean, they had pretty amazing careers, too. One of them um, in your preface, uh, Bessie, um, who had fled a forced marriage or something like that and ended up at the, at the Cameron House, she, was, uh, she went on for, to quite a career, didn't she? She did, and I had the, the good luck to read through the voluminous correspondence um, that is still stored in the private records of Cameron House. Uh, in which different members of the staff advocated for her to be admitted to different institutions. I mean, there was a high school at that point. They didn't want to take a Chinese young woman. Um, They advocated for her to go to uh, Stanford University, uh, which she went to. She struggled initially with some of the courses. They found a tutor for her. She eventually graduated in 1927 and was the first Chinese-American woman to graduate from Stanford. Bessie Jung. Yes, Bessie Jung. And then she went on. Then she went on to medical school. Then she went on to medical school. Yes, so she was a pioneering Chinese physician as well. Yeah, she went to medical school in Pennsylvania, the East Coast. Yes. But she never forgot her, you know, um, how she was really saved and and came back and became a doctor back in San Francisco and was um, treated a lot of the Cameron House girls, right? Yes, yes. So, I mean, talk about the heroism and, and, and empowerment there. Um, these are really such inspiring stories. And I, I guess we should spend a little time talking about just, uh, you mentioned getting to see the private records at Cameron House that for many years had been closed and you were able to get access. Do you want to talk a little bit about how sure. you how you went about getting the information for this book, because it really spans more than 100 years of history. San Francisco history, world history, the story of this of this uh, remarkable Cameron House, and, uh, and Donaldina Cameron, who lived quite a while. She did. She did. Um, so the case records of every single girl, woman, young boy... Um, that came through the home. And the best estimate is perhaps 3,000 people between 1874, when the home was established, and the mid to late 1930s, maybe 3,000 people. Those case records are still 
at Cameron House. And Cameron House has, I think, very um, wisely decided to keep those private because there are families all over the country who have some connection to someone who lived at Cameron House. And some of those families, it's very private. They don't really want um, to talk about it, which I certainly understand. And so I worked with uh, the ex- former executive director of the home, Doreen Durham-McLeod, and um, she very slowly let me see a few of the cases. Uh, we started with the Broken Blossoms case, which was the, the young girl that I mentioned at the very beginning, Jun Guaying. Do you want to say something about Broken Blossoms? Sure. Um, we'll get back to the... Okay. To, if, to the record, shall I yeah, t- yeah, say yeah. what Broken Blossoms? Right, right, yeah. So I mentioned that there was a famous uh, case that begins and ends the book, and it was known as the Broken Blossoms case. And it was the bust up of a uh, very powerful slave ring or trafficking ring um, in the 1930s, in which several of the women involved with Cameron House or residents of Cameron House uh, testified against this trafficker. And it was pretty unheard of to have young women who were had been um, prostituted, forced into um, sex slavery, and then, you know, to go public like this. Yes, it was very, very courageous. And these women often didn't have any other support other than Cameron House. Um, and they were being threatened. And the traffickers had very powerful lawyers, many of whom were white lawyers in the city. Um, so it was a scary and courageous thing that they did. And they ultimately, there was one trial uh, and then a second trial. And the second trial led to the convictions of four of the uh, the principals who were deported. Um, and the papers, the newspapers at the time, declared this the end of, uh, you know, the slave girl ring, and, and oh. the biggest slave girl ring known in, in, on the West Coast. Um, that was wishful thinking, I think. But So some of those records were among those that you found at, at uh, Cameron House? Yes. So those were really the first records that I looked at. Um, and there were also additional um very rich kind of vein of material at the National Archives in Santa Bruno. So there was a lot to work with um, in that, in terms of immigration records and court records. Uh, But, you know, some of the things that I found in those records were photographs of the young women who testified and um, a photograph that was so touching to me uh, of Jun Guaying, the woman I mentioned, the teenager who ran from the beauty shop, Once she had her baby, she testified after she had her baby in a a photograph of her holding this child and and beaming with happiness. So very touching photographs. And so um, many of these young women ended up, um, well, there was almost a marriage bureau thing Mm -hmm. at the, uh, because as they grew older, I mean, some of them were rescued as small children. And uh, as they grew older, um, do you want to say a little bit about what happened to to some of them? I mean, sure. Well, the goal of the, the, just to go back to the world of the church ladies, the angry church ladies who started this home, they couldn't vote, as Helen, you said. Uh, They had virtually no economic power. Uh, they, they were confined in terms of how they could exercise power to charitable activities, such as setting up a rescue home. And so that is what they did. And uh, 
Um, I lost my train of thought again. <laughs> um, what happened to them? Oh, yeah. the girls. So and, what happened? And the marriage arrangements oh, okay. and things like Got that. Got it. So um, one of the things that they were hoping to do, and this is very late Victorian, was uh, to create happy homes, to replicate the idea of Christian homes. And so they would vet some of the men who came to the home. Um, did they have good jobs? Did they have sources of income? Did they were they good Christians? And um, and they would um, approve marriages, essentially. And so it, it became a de facto marriage bureau, the home. And there are marriages across this country that people trace to Cameron House. It's really remarkable. And some of the um, some of the men who came through and were suitors there uh, were also very heroic figures, too. I'm thinking of 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 Ng Poon Chu, yes, who um, courted a, one of the one of the women, one of the uh, very active, educated young women um, who came, you know, through Cameron House. And he became uh, known as the Chinese Mark Twain. I mean, speaking of the White yes. House, it would, you... Oh, he's such a, a marvelous bit. character. And it was such good luck in terms of storytelling to come across him. Because um, not only did he find his wife of half a century uh, in the mission home, but then he decided uh, that instead of becoming a preacher, he was going to become a journalist. And he started a newspaper in San Francisco called the Chung Yapo, which was the Chinese Western Daily, and became the you know most influential Chinese American newspaper on the West Coast, arguably the United States, for mm-hmm. several decades. And so it was really something to try to see his perspective by following what he wrote about. And um, I could tell the story of the earthquake, for example, also through his character and what his family went through, because they lived only two blocks away from the mission home, or his offices were two blocks away. Such a dramatic story that you told with him and the the earthquake and trying to rescue his his notes and not being allowed in and all of those things. Um, I want to have time for, um, for people, anybody who might have questions. So if you have them start thinking of them, but so what ultimately happened to, uh, Dolly Cameron and, and there were so many friendships she forged too. There are stories of just how working with, uh, women over a period of, of uh, you know, in some cases, 70 years, that they had such strong bonds of, of wanting to make, you know, really wanting to make the world better mm-hmm. for the, uh, for the uh, women and girls they found. And, um, and so they had pretty long lives, too, didn't they? Yes, they did. And uh, in some ways, I also wrote the story as a story of a very unusual friendship between Dolly Cameron and a young girl who arrived about 15 months before uh, Dolly arrived in 1894. And this young girl's name was Teen Wu Fu Wu. She'd been sold by her father to pay his gambling debts. And uh, she was a child slave, uh, ultimately in a brothel in Chinatown, and was um, mistreated. 
and finally came to the attention of authorities. And she was rescued in the way that we think of rescue workers with you know, the police coming and barging down doors. And so she was brought in the arms of a policeman to 920 Sacramento Street. And when she first met Dolly Cameron, she didn't much like her at all. She said, I was here before you were here, and don't boss me around. She was very feisty and interesting young young person at that point. In any case, she was very bright. Uh, through the help of supporters of the home, she got an education. She went on to college in Pennsylvania. She went on to get an advanced degree as well, and then uh, tried to go back to find her family in China. And she went back and she could not find them, which is one of the sadder moments of the, the story. Uh, so instead, she came back to the home and decided to work alongside Dolly Cameron. And they spent decades doing that together. And they became each other's closest friends. And one of the most touching parts of my research w was to go to Evergreen Cemetery in Los Angeles uh, to the Cameron family plot. And in the Cameron family plot, there is Teen Fu Wu, uh, who's buried with them. And it was just very touching. And I had the great opportunity to um, meet the Cameron family who live in this area to this day. Oh. And they opened up, they had a big trunk load of family materials dating back to the mid-19th century. And so I was able to go through some of that material as well as to hear their family stories because they knew Auntie Wu, the woman they called Auntie Wu. They knew Auntie Wu mm. and they knew Aunt Dolly as well. So... Well, they sound like such incredibly remarkable women and way ahead of their time. So I wanted to take this moment to just see if there are any questions um, from any of you from what you've heard. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. All right, there are two here. How about you, sir, first, and, and then you? Thank you very much. With your indulgence, uh, two brief questions. How fluent was Donaldina Cameron in Cantonese? I'm happy to answer that question. She was not fluent in Cantonese. And I make the point that she very heavily relied on her Chinese staffers and Chinese colleagues in yeah. the home. She could not have done her job without them. And the second question, under her guidance and her marriage bureau, when the women were brought, with, brought into their wedding ceremony, what color dress did Donaldina Cameron have them wear? Well, it, she followed the Victorian Convention. You know I have the to answer. Interrupt because your colleague sees what oh, a course. sneaky question. Well, that I is. know exactly where this question comes from, and it's a very good criticism. I understand it. So, um, Victor, uh, Dolly Cameron was a full-on Victorian lady. So. Uh, as were her colleagues. And so the young women who got married were dressed in white. 
Whereas that would not be a traditional gown color uh, for a Chinese woman. Because? It is because what? Because it's uh, related to death. Yes, it is. Yes. It's a funeral color. Yes, that's a very good point. And uh, there were areas there were areas as well where Donalina Cameron and the other people, the other women who worked in the home were not as culturally sensitive as certainly we would wish they had been from our 21st century perspective. And I don't want to score points on you. I raised these two questions as a, as a retired but unrepentant rhetoric professor mm-hmm. because they go to the heart of cultural understanding. Mm-hmm. It lies in the language and it lies in the customs. And she had neither, which raises questions for me. Oh, I would disagree with that. And I, th- I think we'll move on from there, but I do think that... <laughs> Um, for example, they sought to serve Chinese food. She desperately sought to try to understand Chinese culture more. And that explains why she was so reliant on staffers like Teen Fu Wu. And in fact, when you um, have an opportunity to read Julie's book, you'll see that actually I think you go very deeply into um, Talking about things that, uh, and and you don't mince words. You say this was a racist, um, you know, way of thinking. You have a whole chapter talking about the little China man, which in the beginning of the book is the way Chinese people were referred to by um, um, society at that time, and and you call it out as you see it. But but also saying about Donaldina Cameron, she was aware of her inability to speak um, Cantonese. And, and, and you point out that she says many times she wished she did mm-hmm. and urged her successors to study uh, Cantonese. And, and one of them did become mm-hmm. pretty fluent in it. Yes. And she also wanted Teen Fu Wu to become her successor, which is a sign of her respect for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, so I hope you read it and it'll, it'll dispel some of your thoughts. And so there's another question here. Um, yeah, my, my, my grandmother was detained on Angel Island in 1916, and I was shocked to find out from the archives that she was uh, advocated for by Donaldina Cameron. Um, so personally indebted. Um, but I was also I was curious about uh, Donaldina's, uh, I mean, like in terms of the overlap between uh, the Angel Island experience and trafficking, um, uh, what, what do you know about uh, about Donardina's work with Angel Island and and did trafficking happen through Angel Island? There was a uh, a young woman who was the first Chinese employee of Angel Island by the Immigration Services. Her name was Tai Liung, and one of her duties in assuming that job was to try to look out for women who had been trafficked. Um, so I think there was quite an overlap. But that's really fascinating about uh, your your well, it was amazing to me to find that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, over here, please. Thank you. That's uh, just wonderful to know a little bit more about San Francisco. I was curious, how did writing the book change you? Hmm. That's a that's a wonderful question. Well, your Chinese is pretty good now. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, not. But thank you. Um, it made me think about empathy more, and um, it 
Hmm, how did it change me? It made me, it gave me some encouragement and inspiration that this was a very small group of people who really affected a lot of people's lives and that perhaps we can affect social change um, in small groups with small steps. So that's how it, it changed me. In fact, you refer to um, their, the work of, of Donald Dina Cameron and the, the others, including um, Teen Wu and the, um, the young women she mentored as radical empathy. So the changes were, I'm sure, f- far more extensive than they would have imagined. And, and who knows? Do you, think they, um, do you think Dolly Cameron had any idea that more than 100 years later, you know, she created this, this legacy that still exists. The building is still there. It looks just as it was after uh, it was rebuilt after the earthquake. And by the way, are there ghosts? Ooh, I think there are ghosts. I do. So I've, I've been down to the basement many times. And, you know, you kind of, you, you stroll around the internet a little bit. And it's considered the most haunted house in San Francisco. Really? Oh. Cameron House. And if you go down into the basement, you can see the openings where um, there are tunnels. There really, there is a tunnel that leads up into the street a little bit. But also, in tours of the home, you see where the girls would hide. Because uh, armed with writs of habeas corpus, traffickers would enter the building and say, you know, we have the right to bring this girl back. And um, they'd hide from from those people. So I think they're ghosts. I'm wondering if any of the um, those of you who uh, were part of Cameron House, did you grow up hearing about these stories? Did you think there were ghosts? Did you know about these hidden tunnels? Uh, Anybody care to share some of that? (laughs) Hi, um, my name is Diane. Thank you for writing the book. I did. I spent about 20 years from my teens till I started after graduated college. And as part of being part of Cameron House, they did teach us the history of the girls um, and showed us the tunnels. So it was always kind of fun for us as kids to like tease each other. You go, you go. You know, (laughs) none of us went. So, um, yeah, so we did hear about that. And I think to this day, even though they're not used for the same thing, Cameron House continues to help the community. Somebody like myself who grew up in Chinatown kept us off the streets, so maybe we weren't in fear of being trafficked or, you know, into um, prostitution. But it certainly kept us away from, you know, the the gang violence and uh, all of that in Chinatown. So thank you. Now, I think the book has a little bit more history than I'm aware of, and so I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, there's a question over here, and then Lotus. Oh. Actually, I have uh, two questions. Um, one, I think I remember that uh, Teddy Roosevelt actually came out to visit her at one point, too. Um, considering her skills at fundraising, did she manage to get anything from Teddy on this particular uh, visit and then the other one. This is actually more, I think, curiosity on my own. Uh, sometimes in in the reporting in the papers um, about Cameron, there was another missionary who was mentioned, uh, named Marguerite Lake. And I was I was curious, did they ever work together? And also, I mean, 
she she was around for only a few years and was very very outspoken and a lot of the i think missionary or the church did not like her and she she disappeared and i was wondering if you happen to know like what happened to her because it seems like nobody knows so mm-hmm. um I'll answer the first question first. So I did not find evidence of a donation by Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, so sorry about that. Uh, however, Marguerite Lake is really fascinating character. There's a uh, academic named Dr. Staley, Jeffrey Staley, who has tracked down her movements and very kindly shared a lot of his work with me. And um, Donaldina and Marguerite Lake testified in front of state legislators in right at the turn of the century together. In fact, they, they brought an assortment of the, uh, the girls and the younger, the younger women uh, to tell their stories in front of these state legislators. And we have the testimony. I went to Sacramento and found it. Um, and it is heartbreaking. Uh, and so Marguerite Lake was um, outspoken. There was something that happened where she and very abruptly ended up leaving the Methodist uh, home, which was just a couple blocks on Washington Street. Um, she ended up running a much smaller and quieter organization also in San Francisco. Um, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but it may have had something to do with a very corrupt special which was a kind of police officer that both Donaldina and Marguerite used uh, to help them in rescue operations. And this guy was uh, corrupt. And he was waving around a specials badge that had expired a long time ago. So best guess is something happened and she disappeared from the scene because of that. And speaking of corruption, I, we didn't cover the municipal crib, but the mayor of San Francisco had an interest in, in a, you know, theoretically municipal organized uh, brothel not it, far from here. Yeah. Astonishing. It was on Jackson Street. It had uh, rooms or, you know, enough room for at least 100 women to be working there. And um, it was the, one of the first buildings in Chinatown to be rebuilt after the 1906 earthquake. It got a guess fast what? track. First know. track. Yeah. yeah. And it became, it was still a brothel. So they rebuilt it and expanded it. And this was during the period of the great graft trial shortly after. So those same, some of those same characters ended up, you know, one of them ended up in San Quentin. Um, but uh, that was kind of the, one of the most astonishing stories, the municipal crib. And I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but the story was that when the trolley or the cable car went up past that building on Jackson Street, if there were no women on the cable car, uh, the trolley driver would say, all out for the whorehouse. So everybody knew it was operating. And the, the prostitution women- was legal, too. It was legal, yeah. and th- these were not um, solely Chinese oh, girls no. there. They had a, an assortment, and you described that depending on the background and so forth, there was a different price for yes. on which floor they were on and so forth. You, Let's uh, just say the French women were at the top and the uh, most costly. <laughs> yeah. And so there was a, a question here and then over here and another one. Hello. Hi, David. Hey, Julie. Good seeing you. 
David Pons from Cameron House. Oh, really great. happy to have him oh, here. Sure. Yeah, so I'm a Cameron House employee. Um, and just going back to the earlier um, question about tunnels and ghosts. Oh, yeah, tunnels. Um, I get a lot of questions about that in my job, and there's some things I just want to lay to rest. Um, okay. But first off, off to your question about like the tunnels, I have heard like secondhand from our alumni that the tunnel is a great place if you're playing sardines. Um, and if you're <laughs> very daring. Um, that it was like, connected to, it's part of an old like coal chute also. Um, but yeah, there's that. that it's a great hiding spot. Um, but a part that I read online a lot that I feel is apocryphal in my gut, and I just wonder if you've stumbled across any accounts in your own research, is that um, during the, you know, the cataclysmic earthquake and fire, there were women who were trapped in the basement. As the burning building collapsed, you, know, you can still hear their screams at night when oh, you yeah, walk that. by. And it's just, <laughs> can you please just like put that? Uh, did you, did you that, come that as far that? as I can tell, is not true. Okay. <laughs> is not true at all, because she... Donaldina Cameron and the other staff members managed to get all of the residents out safely. Um, nobody died during, nobody in the home died during that time. The thing on like Wikipedia where it's like, oh, this web page has it, and then they cite that web page, yeah. but it's like when you circ when you go around, it's just like circular reference, and it's not any yeah. actually anywhere's no primary source. So, well, one of the remarkable and wonderful things as a historian is that church folks keep unbelievable records <laughs> of everything, and so there were detailed records of who was in the home, how many got out. Um, I could track all that. So. Thank you for asking those questions. We'll need to correct Wikipedia. Yes, we will. <laughs> we'll do and some work on that. So there was a question, Lotus Doe, one of our um, community uh, leaders. We're all trying to understand the history. Um, going back to Teddy Roosevelt and Mark Twain, I think it's important to understand the history of the day because the debate was, should America expand and acquire colonies and China yes. was one of the most prized um, objects of the China trade across the Pacific. They finished the um, Transcontinental Railroad, uh, just uh, observed last Friday on May 10th. So uh, in that context, what else? Uh, the reason Chinese women particularly were... Um, fatefully, unfortunately, tied with the prostitute image was that um, the number of men that were recruited as workers for the railroad stayed and worked and became a, quote, labor threat, you know, which created the backlash and the racism and therefore the Exclusion Act of 1882. So the women who would have been um, missionaries or... Um, motivated to save these girls, uh, did they have any political power in terms of understanding the Exclusion Act? Because that extended for 63 years. Uh, most of our generation, uh, Helen and me and our mothers, could not come to the U.S. until uh, the late, well, 1949. After World War II. After World War II. So the difference between the Chinese community and the Japanese community as Chinese were excluded and Japanese, Filipinos, Koreans were recruited as labor, the ja Japan won two wars, the um, Russo-Japanese wars at the turn of the century, 1895-1905. They were given a gentleman's agreement to bring uh, picture brides, cherry blossom brides. So eventually, although 
they couldn't originally buy land. They later were able to establish families and farms. So the Chinese community has suffered greatly in terms of not being able to have intact families until very, very, very recently after World War II and the 65 Immigration Act. So I just want to put the prostitute image in that context. That's a really interesting perspective, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I would make, to to reinforce what you're saying, I would say that some of the most important legal challenges that occurred were families somehow associated with uh, the mission home, the challenge for public education for Chinese and Asian um, children in the, in the city, that those parents had been involved with the mission home. Uh, likewise, in Punchu, who, who you referred to as the Chinese Mark Twain, he was a crusader against the exclusion law, against the many, many ways in which that was extended over time. And um, uh, he was very effective at, at offering that perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so I, I just would like to say that um, having the benefit of read this book already, that Julie really does give the background of these different um, federal laws, state laws, uh, San Francisco ordinances, and also things like the, uh, what is it, was it 1915? The 1915 Panama Pacific International Exhibition, which mm -hmm. was held right over there, yeah, uh, Fort fun. Mason. And, um, and you talk about how there was a, a whole exhibit that was very demeaning to the Chinese um, people and to Chinatown. It was a whole Chinatown exhibit that sort of, you know, um, glorified the whole idea of prostitution. And, and, and you go into how critiquing that and how the people of Chinatown actually fought that and wanted that exhibit shut down. They didn't really succeed in getting it shut down, but, but I, I, I do think you do quite a job in, Thank you. in really naming all of these, uh, the laws, what led to them, and the context for them. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I think there was another question over here. Hmm. Well, Abe Roof was the fixer, and it was Eugene Schmitz, who was known as Handsome Gene. <laughs> I hear chuckles. People must know the reputation of the Handsome Gene. San Francisco history lovers here. Yes. Uh, uh, microphone, please. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. I wanted to know the methodology of how they actually saved these women. Did they walk into these brothel places? I mean, how did they find these women and what did they do to try to save them that was effective? Sure. So sometimes a rescue would be a girl would um, send a note to the home and indicate where she was. And so uh, staffers from the home, usually accompanied by a police officer, would go to the brothel or wherever she was being kept. And they might barge down the door which wasn't exactly legal. Uh, they might climb through a skylight um, or, you know, somehow bodily remove her from the brothel. Other times there were situations where the, the young women and the girls would find the home themselves and make their own way there. So it worked, it worked all kinds of different ways. Yeah. 
It's kind of remarkable to think. I mean, periodically we have um, news articles about uh, sex trafficking that happens today or hidden brothels even in, you know, suburban neighborhoods and so forth. But the idea of having these volunteers, these women just sort of go and physically remove and rescue these women. It's just amazing. Well, and it's the era of Carrie Nation with her, you know, axe bashing down uh, doors at that point. I mean, women were, they didn't have the right to vote, but they were doing some pretty remarkable things in terms of saying, we want to change things. Yes, and and we have another question here. Yes. So it sounds like there was a lot of money and probably criminal enterprise behind these prostitution rings. So were the women that worked at this mission ever um, the subject of, of threats of violence? Or did they have to fear for their lives or their safety? Right around the day that Donaldina Cameron first showed up on the doorstep of the mission home in 1895 as a sewing teacher, very sheltered sewing teacher, someone had placed bombs all the way around the home. So the home had been threatened with violence over the years in a variety of ways, broken windows, sticks of dynamite, um, lots of written threats, uh, things like that. People spat on them. Um, So there were threats, yes. And yet they persisted. Yes. I mean, that is incredibly inspiring. And um, are there other questions? Because I wanted to um, hear another question back here. Speaking of dropping down from rooftops, um, this was during Victoria time. Women, their dress. I mean, how, how were they dressed when they did this? <laughs> Going through tunnels and dropping down from buildings. Yes. I'm, I'm just curious. I, lo- I love that question. It's so down in the weeds. It's excellent. So um, women during that time, especially they were, you know, they were always kind of impoverished. They never had enough money, the women who staffed that home. So they would wear uh, shirt waists, usually for dressy occasions, white shirt waists, always kind of black, long skirts. Um, they didn't wear trousers, so that's a really good question. I don't exactly know how they'd scramble down without, you know, revealing a little too much. I'm not sure. <laughs> but boots, practical boots, practical footwear. Um, we're almost out of time, and I was just wondering if there are some lessons you think, um, you know, from this story that really is more than 100 years ago that you started, but um, there's so much that's relevant to today if there are any things that you would want to, you know, in your five years of working on this book that leads you to, you know, thoughts of, um, to take away from for today. Yes. Well, we're at a very racially charged time right now. We're at a time where the other is demonized and it has a lot of similarities with what happened in the late 19th century. Um, and I think that the lesson for me is that it's important to reach out to the other and to defy that kind of otherization, that separation. Um, and uh, I guess the biggest takeaway, you're going to know this expression better than I do, Helen. What is the famous saying about, you know, a few determined people can make, can change the world? Well, I think you just said it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they did. They did. Yeah. Well, 
Julia um, Flynn Seiler, thank you so much thank for you. sharing your book, your new book with us. And I hope every one of you goes out and buys 10 of them and give it to <laughs> all of your friends and tell them about this. It's really a remarkable book. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you uh, to our speakers. Excellent program. Thank you to our audience here, and thank you to our listening audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Yeah.